0: This week's TribCast is sponsored by Philanthropy Advocates' work to advance education policy, cradle to career, is more important than ever. Learn more at philanthropyadvocates.org and Texas Blockchain Summit. Join us in Austin to hear from senators, SEC commissioners, and policymakers about the ever-changing cryptocurrency markets. Find out more at texasblockchainsummit.org The Texas Tribune Festival has come to a close, but it's not too late to catch up. Twenty five sessions are now available to watch for free, including conversations with Beto O'Rourke, John Cornyn, and Amy Klobuchar. Explore the free program now at tribfest.org.
1: Hello and welcome to the Texas Tribune Tribcast for September 29th, 2021. My name is Matthew Watkins, Managing Editor of News and Politics for the Tribune. And this week I am joined by Criminal Justice Reporter Jolie McCullough. Hello. Uh, Hi. Um, Demographics Reporter Alexa Ura. Hello. And our poor, poor politics reporter James (laughs) Bedegon, who's still still struggling after his his, uh, LA Galaxy was uh. defeated, Ooh. humiliated Ooh. by Austin FC, the, <laughs> the worst team the in conference. the league. Not the league the, the wow. conference. Wow!
2: Really? What, a, what a welcome on on Hispanic <laughs> Heritage Month, uh, Matthew Watkins. <laughs> How dare you?
1: Thanks for joining us, James. Uh, all right. So this week uh, we are going to talk about redistricting again. In the in the last week and a half, we've seen new proposed maps from or for the Texas Senate and for Congress in Texas. Um, Evan, our our boss's boss, uh, tweeted just recently that that Dade Phelan told him at an event today that we'll see house maps tomorrow. I can't um, believe
3: you're overlooking the State Board of Education. I'm, you're sorry, just not I'm in, sorry. Come on.
1: The State you're Board the of Education lines, right? as well. As well. They, <laughs> no, I, I think Senate came out first, but then SBOE, but, and, and now Congress as well. But anyways, uh, you know, kind of what we're seeing here in these maps in the Senate, uh, lawmakers proposing a map that would have 19 districts won by Trump in 2020 and 12 districts won by Biden. That is a um, slightly more kind of Republican leaning map than the current one uh, in which there are 18 Republican senators and 13 Democrats. And meanwhile, for the congressional map, we had lawmakers drawing two new seats for Texas, uh, one Democratic seat in Austin and a GOP seat in Houston. And for the 36 districts that were kind of, you know, Carrying over from the last map, you have 23 that were handily won by Trump, 12 handily won by Biden, and one South Texas swing seat that I am sure we will talk about a little bit here. So what we're really talking about here is kind of a, you know, somewhat keeping of the partisan status quo, but this being accomplished in large part by diluting the voting power of people of color in the state, particularly the Hispanic population, um, James, you, I think we can kind of get into what they're doing here with these maps and things like that, but uh, you know you you have written kind of the initial stories on each of these drops of these maps. What stands out to you uh, the most about kind of what the lawmakers are doing uh, this this session in terms of drawing these new political boundaries?
2: Well, for me, it's been two things. Uh, one has been the increased polarization of these districts, uh, incumbents getting drawn into, much safer districts, Democrats uh, getting drawn into more safely Democratic districts and Republicans getting drawn into more safely Republican districts, which just means that these elections are gonna be won in the primary, which will pull both parties to the extreme um, and will be, in my opinion, a continuation of the politics we've been seeing over the last 10 years, uh, which is not great for voters, I don't think. Um, but the second thing, uh, which is also very, very important, and I'm sure Alexa will want to dive into this in, in her greater knowledge of it, but I mean, no additional Hispanic or Black opportunity districts, but particularly Hispanic opportunity districts. And not only is there no additional opportunity districts, there's actually less opportunity districts in the congressional map um, than there are in, in the proposed congressional map than there are currently. Um, And, you know, Alexa has written a ton about this, you know, 95% of the state's population growth in the last 10 years was driven by people of color. Almost half of the 4 million additional people that there are in Texans in Texas are uh, Hispanics. Um, And so just more than half. Okay. So to see that um, and no additional Hispanic opportunity districts, which for those who are not familiar with these like technical terms, is just a district where um, Hispanics in a Hispanic opportunity district would be a, a district where Hispanics are a majority of the population of that district and can elect a candidate of their choice. Um, there's also with other racial minorities. Uh, but to see that there was not only more additional districts like that, but actually less uh, districts than in the current map, I think that was surprising. And I think that you know the the National LULAC president uh, mentioned it in his in his comments, both at the committee hearing and to us afterwards. That LULAC has sued the state um, every decade since the 1970s after the Voting Rights Act passed um, because of their uh, political maps, and they've done so successfully every decade. And he warned that if the maps are not changed, um, they will be filing suit again. Um, so I think. The lack of opportunity districts, given the population growth that was driven by people of color, I think that is just an invitation for a lawsuit um, and something that really stood out to me.
1: Yeah, I mean, the racial breakdown when you're looking at kind of uh, eligible voters in these proposed districts, there are 23 of the 38 districts um, are majority white uh, eligible voters, just seven majority Hispanic eligible voters. This despite the fact that, you know, the Hispanic and white populations in the state are, you know, essentially even according to the 2020 census. You know, some of that difference is there's an age demographic difference, right? Um, But that, you know, doesn't even go close to explaining that kind of discrepancy in in the kind of how the, the political power is divided up in these maps, Alexa
3: no i mean it's it's pulling back from the benchmark right it's it's pulling back from what already existed in the maps that they started drawing from and you know I, I think i think it's it's hard to look at these maps and not think how difficult really it's become for republicans to draw really advantageous maps for themselves um when you think about the breakdown of voter affiliation based on race in a place like Texas, right? Republicans are much more likely to rely on white voters. If you've got an area that has a high density of voters of color, they are more likely to be Democratic voters. And and if you look at these maps, I mean, there are some districts that now stretch beyond what they did before republican districts that sort of stretch into more rural white areas in order to be able to to be shored up and and you and places like dfw you know come into kind of the urban core of dallas and tarrant to sort of pick up some voters of color and then leave them in a district that is otherwise majority white and and much more rural and and there are sort of little examples of this throughout that that really show you know, we talk about redistricting and, and the, uh, the idea of locking in power for the next decade. And I think this is probably maybe the first time in a long time where it's sort of unclear f- at, from where we're standing now whether these maps will actually hold 10 years from now, just given clearly how hard it's become to kind of go beyond the status quo in terms of what's available for Republicans.
1: Okay, so I wanna I wanna ask James. You mentioned uh, the Hispanic population in Texas grew by how much over the last t- ten years? You said it's around four nearly
2: million, nearly two million people, right? Alexa? Two
1: million people. Okay. Yeah, it's I nearly
3: mean, two million people of the nearly four million people the state gained since twenty ten.
1: And about 700, you know, these these new congressional districts, as they are currently drawn up, it's uh, about seven hundred sixty six thousand, seven hundred sixty seven thousand population. Uh, in each district. So what we're talking about is basically three congressional districts worth, a little bit less than three congressional districts worth of Hispanic new Hispanic people in this state over the past 10 years. And we're actually seeing the number of majority Hispanic districts in this state going down during that time. I mean, there there has to be, you know, some very kind of strategic drawing of lines in order to do that. And, you know, I mean, let's talk a little bit, Alexa, about how they did that. I mean, a lot of it is packing Democrats, packing people of color into certain districts. We have this new district in Austin, which is, um, uh, you know, was kind of given to the Democrats through this and, and kind of overwhelmingly Democratic. You, you see uh, lawmakers like Lizzie Fletcher, um, Colin Allred, who are, um, you know, were kind of Democrats holding swing seats and instead of kind of targeting those Democrats and trying to kind of run up the numbers in terms of raw numbers, what they did was pack a lot of Democrats into the, those seats and, and make those, you know, overwhelmingly Democratic seats uh, in a way to kind of, you know, really take the, the the strategy here of, you know, not necessarily running up the numbers, but really kind of an incumbent protection plan, right? And, and you know, Alexa likes to give me grief about my favorite word being entrenched, right now but that that's really what this is an entrenchment of the current kind of power structure in this state.
3: Yeah, and we should we should take a, just a small step back to acknowledge that the the current state is lopsided representation, right? In the 2020 election, the division of votes between Democrats and Republicans, it was I think 52 Republican and like 47 Democrat. And when you look at the congressional delegation, it, it's not even close, anywhere close to that, right? It's probably of the of the three sort of legislative maps and congressional maps we're looking at, it's the most lopsided. So like even the status quo isn't reflective of where the state is in terms of its politics, at least in the last election. But then I think when you look at, we, we gained two new congressional districts because of this growth that was largely driven by voters of color Obviously, that growth, you know, when you think about the Hispanic population, 2 million people, they're not just all in one place, right, which is sort of what you have to consider when you are drawing some of these opportunity districts. There are things about sort of geographic compactness and people that are living close together and voting close together because of that. But, you know, there was a lot of calls for new opportunity districts that reflected that growth, particularly in places like the DFW area, particularly in Harris County, and instead what you have You have a new district in the Harris County area that is seemingly a Republican district based on the analysis we've gotten so far. And you have a new district in the Travis County area, a place that has grown, but not a place where advocates and community leaders had been really pushing for a, a new opportunity district to really reflect the state's diversity. And so I, you know, I what I've heard so far from, from folks on the sort of civil rights end of this is that like you, it's sort of a false way to think about it. If, if you think of like the new Travis County district, which is a democratic district as sort of coming at a cost for the voters of color in the DFW area that could have been drawn into new opportunity district, it's sort of a kind of false premise, right? Because if you are drawing districts to really reflect the population, you're not really you're not supposed to be trading one thing for the other you can do both and I think if you look at this map look at the lack of new opportunity districts for voters of color particularly Hispanic voters I mean the litigation is sort of writing itself as we speak
1: so I mean I think oh go ahead James
2: oh I just wanted to jump in in terms of um because Alexa highlighted the DFW area I mean I, I just think that you know sometimes people forget how big the hispanic and latino population is up there in north texas i mean in, in some some instances it 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 out um it's a larger than like some places in san antonio or some places in the rgv even so it's a it's a it's a huge hispanic population up there and i think people up there just from my previous work at the dallas morning news people up there were really hoping for a Hispanic opportunity district up there and and it it has to be said that uh, north texas in particular tarrant and dallas counties have never had a latino in congress um, i think that sometimes surprises me It surprises people it certainly surprised me uh, when i when i learned that um, and so there's hope that that could be done but instead what we have is you know Strange configurations like CD33 up there and then shoring up Colin Allred, shoring up uh, Beth Van Dyne, shoring shoring up Van Taylor um, in really strange configurations. And I think, you know, as Alexis saying, I mean, the, 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 the litigation is just writing itself because there was clear opportunity for that to be done. And instead, we chose to go with these weirdly shaped districts.
1: Let's let's talk about a little a little bit about the litigation here. I mean, um, you, you know, we have, we talked about this when we kind of previewed redistricting about how this is the first time in, um, you know, in, in a long time that the that the state has not been under the kind of pre-clearance um, requirements of the Voting Rights Act uh, several decades that we're talking about here. Um, We're also in a situation, of course, where we don't know kind of what the um, the the current Supreme Court and the the various other kind of areas of federal courts that have, of course, been greatly affected by the um, addition of a whole lot of new judges from the uh, Trump administration. What um, you know, how these things will be evaluated, Alexa? What are you hearing about? You know, from these advocates, from the people that tend to sue about you know what they expect to kind of highlight in this litigation, what they feel is, you know, possibly vulnerable or or that they might have a hard time uh, going against, uh, you know, once once we get to the end of this kind of legislative process.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think it, without a doubt, this is going to end up in litigation, right? Lou has said, look... We've done it every decade. If these maps don't change, we're going to do it again. In a statement the day the congressional maps came out, the president of the Texas NAACP, which has also regularly sued the state, specifically said that these maps were retrogressive, which is used to be a key word in preclearance that was sort of the standard that you had to review for. Do these maps pull back on opportunities for voters of color? You can sort of hypothesize whether some of these lines would have been drawn if we were still under preclearance. And that's an exercise I'm sure some people are maybe woefully engaging in. But I think if you, if you look at the way we are pulling back from districts that had majority Black uh, electorates. We're pulling back from the district, one district that had a majority Hispanic electorate, no new opportunity districts. We are under sort of a different legal regime. But when you think about the Voting Rights Act, the the liability on the state is to ensure that they are not discriminating against voters of color, right? It's it, They have a liability to ensure that they are not diluting. Obviously, you can Bring lawsuits claiming this is a violation, but they you know, we've heard from lawyers who have said it, it is also on the state to ensure they're following the law. Right? This can be done preemptively. It doesn't have to be done in litigation that comes after. And I think Section Two of the Voting Rights Act has also has always been a key component of the litigation, sort of separate from pre-clearance and that sort of federal oversight. Um, and and given some of the way these districts have been pulled back in terms of those majority Hispanic seats. And if you think about the lack of the opportunity district that people had been pushing for, we're going to start seeing a lot of maps showing how they could have done just that, how they could have done that opportunity district. And I think those demonstrative maps that we'll start seeing come out from these groups will sort of show the pathway, the alternative pathway the ledge could have taken.
1: You know, it it has been very interesting to see um, just also a um, sign of how this map is kind of also a reflection of how the state has changed over the last 10 years. I mean, uh, Alexa and I, you and I have talked privately about my just fascination with Column County and how, you know, uh, if you had told me 10 years ago that Column County was a county that they would have to kind of carve up to protect incumbents, I would have been stunned. And... uh, the city of Plano, right, uh, a long kind of conservative bastion is now has is carved up, you know, into the same number of uh, congressional districts as the city of Austin. And, and and there's so much signs of the change. Then you go down kind of to South Texas and the border. Right. And you very clearly see in the seat currently held by Vicente Gonzalez um, and an effort by Republicans to kind of take advantage of the relative success that Trump had in that region compared to kind of expectations in there. And in that district in particular is one that uh, Gonzales lost, or sorry, won by a much closer than expected margin in 2020. And now they have kind of moved, you know, redrawn that district into a district that Trump won by a small margin in, in, in 2020, in which, you know, it's pretty clear that he is going to be a top target. That's really kind of the one battleground seat in this maps, at least as, as far as it goes now. So you are kind of seeing a little bit of a reflection of kind of how the politics of this state are changing and, you know, what what some might have seen as kind of unexpected ways over the past decade as well.
3: Yeah, I think that the extent to which the reflection of the politics versus the reflection of the people and how that will play out in court. I mean, it's obviously going to be unique in some ways because of the sort of new legal landscape that we're on. But in a lot of ways, that's also kind of the story of the history of Texas when it comes to redistricting.
1: So the other kind of bit of election news that came out today was a, a, a kind of week long, or I guess less than a week, but a several days long kind of rollout of Greg Abbott's newly announced election audit we saw uh, you know this come up in the last legislative session the Texas Senate at the last minute passing an uh, legislation that would allow for audits this raised a lot of concern among you know voting uh, rights advocates people who are concerned about you know efforts to kind of sow distrust in the election obviously we saw what happened in Arizona with with their audit going on then that bill did not you know, have time to kind of make it out of the house this uh, in in the previous session, but then we saw the uh, the president come out, uh, I believe, earlier this week and and call for Greg, Greg Abbott to to add an election audit to the agenda for this current special session. It seems as though Greg Abbott is not interested in doing that, but he came out and said that Texas. Uh, it turns out has been doing its own what he describes as an audit for, for several weeks, several months. I think um, is is what he said in his in, in the Secretary of State's announcement. Um, and then late last night, Alexa is just as you were trying to uh, log off for the day, we we finally was, saw was some so details. i so close
3: to going on a bike ride, <laughs> so close.
1: Exactly. We finally saw some details as to what that audit actually entailed. Can you tell us a little bit about what's going on here in terms of the review of the 2020 election? An election, you know, we should note that uh, Trump won uh, in Texas and that the Secretary of State's office had kind of come out and said was fair. Uh, I, I you, you can probably remind me of the exact words he used. Smooth
3: and smooth, secure. Smooth and secure.
1: Exactly. So, So what's happening here with this audit?
3: Yeah. So, I mean, this is following up on the SOS's very vague announcement from last week in which they uh, said that they were conducting, quote, full forensic audit audits in four Texas counties, Harris, Dallas, Tarrant and Collin. two Republican, two Democrat, though obviously Tarrant is sort of marginally Uh, Republican, at least at the top of the ticket in these last few elections. And in the documentation that we got last night, it was split up into these two phases. uh, The first phase of which seemed to sort of give the governor some cover in the statements he had made that these audits had been underway for months, even though local officials said that they had no idea what he was talking about and had received no information about any of this. And it turns out that that first phase is really covers things that counties are already required by law to do, right? These are things like something called a partial manual count, which counties have to do 72 hours after polls close, in which they do partial counts of the votes to ensure that they are accurate, right? They, they sort of take samples, and that's already required by law. There were these sort of security assessments, these uh, what appear to be sort of like cybersecurity assessments. Again, counties are already required to do those things. Uh, and so the idea of this being underway turns out is just sort of the existing checks and balances that are already written into the system that counties are already required to do. And what we did learn, though, is that there is sort of second phase is slated for spring 2022. No sort of details beyond that. Obviously, that's a could be a pretty lengthy time period, depending on how you think about it. Um, And that'll be an examination of these election records that counties are already required to maintain. So things like the accuracy tests that they run on their voting machines, the check-in rosters for early voting, these sort of like chain of custody forms that people are supposed to fill out when they're transporting sealed ballot boxes to sort of the central office after an election and you know but it also includes things like the reasonable impediment forms that people fill out when they don't have one of the photo ids the state requires voters to present and like those things are already sent to the secretary of state's office so you know it's definitely probably less ambitious than the term than the like vague full forensic audit term might suggest Uh, but i will note you know Matthew, you mentioned those sort of audits that the Texas Senate tried to pass, that legislation that would have sort of paved the way for county audits. You know, at the very, very bottom of the documentation that SOS sent out, there is a line that says, you know, if the Secretary of State's review sort of come up with enough evidence that there are enough sort of, quote, irregularities or deviations from the normal procedure that could have affected sort of the accuracy of the count, that this could actually trigger sort of full manual recounts in some precincts or in some polling locations in counties. And if you watched any of the debate, the debate over that bill that the Senate passed, there were some, you know, Harris County area of Republicans sort of raising sort of their longstanding issues with some of the things that happened in that County, even though there have been no reported issues of sort of malfeasance or widespread fraud. Um, and I do think that there's still a way in which this, what seems to be nothing close to sort of a full forensic audit could still pave the way for the Republicans who have been wanting a closer look at Harris County, uh, to actually end up getting that.
1: Uh, you mentioned the Republicans who want a little bit of a closer look at Harris County. I want to read a little bit from this letter that Trump issued to Abbott because it's, it's extremely interesting. Um, some of the detail he goes into, he says, we need HB 16, which was just filed in the third special session, uh, parentheses or uh, ellipses here. The bill creates a process for candidates and party chairs to initiate an audit and uses the same language as SB 97, which already passed the Texas Senate, but did not have enough time to make it through the House during the second special session. Uh, Donald Trump later goes on to talk about how um, the state uh, is required to keep ballots for 22 months and that time is starting to run out. Um you know, just a striking level of amount of detail that Donald Trump seems to know about what's going on in the Texas legislature. And who
3: knew he was spending so much time <laughs> on hashtag Texas yeah. left?
1: <laughs> be, gotta be reading the Texas Tribune. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. I mean, it's either that, right, or that someone is in his ear about this, which I think set off a lot of kind of interest to people. Um, you know, who is this kind of putting... Greg Abbott on the defensive here. James, I, I, I will not expect you to answer that question, because I don't think that any of us know the answer to that question. But it has been, you know, fascinating to see kind of how Abbott has had to kind of respond to this. And, you know, it's just another situation where... um You know, he he is pushing a lot of conservative issues right now, whether it's his border crackdown, which we're going to go into a little bit later with Jolie or, you know, these election bills and other things like that. But he continues to kind of hear it from, you know, the most vocally Trump wing of the party, his his primary challengers and now the president himself on on, you know, calls to be doing more along these lines.
2: Yeah, and, and his and his GOP primary challenger, Don Huffines, has also called for election audits. He, he called for it to get on the special session. And so I mean, there is a, I would say there is a vocal minority that is certainly getting the governor's attention and that is, you know, continues to get the former president's attention. And, and so we'll see. We'll see if we have to call in the cyber ninjas, I guess.
1: <laughs> That's right. As, as far as we see for now, it's not the cyber ninjas coming to town. This, this uh, as, as far as we know is now, it's the, the Secretary of State that will be running this audit, but definitely something to keep an eye on uh, as things go forward. All right, let's pause for a minute and take a hear a message from our sponsors.
0: Independent Colleges and Universities of Texas, Private Colleges, Public Purpose, Texas's independent colleges and universities are as diverse as the students and communities they serve. Learn more at icut.org. And the Beer Alliance of Texas. Direct-to-consumer sales lead to illicit and potentially harmful alcoholic beverage products making their way into the market. Find out more at beeralliance.com.
1: Okay, so we mentioned, you know, right before going into the break, uh, Governor Greg Abbott's uh, border enforcement efforts and continued kind of fights with the Biden administration and, and law enforcement efforts to kind of bring Texas into the enforcement of the states or the country's immigration laws. Jolie you've been tracking this uh, pretty doggedly for the for recent months and on Monday you reported that more than 200 men were being held in a state prison facility without charges being filed against them a day later a, in a hearing a judge ordered the release of those men kind of the latest um you know, uh, hiccup. I guess feels like maybe a bit too minor of a term to use. The latest challenge that these uh, Abbott uh, border enforcement efforts have faced. Tell us a little bit about what happened with these these men in particular, and, and, and why they were released.
4: Sure. So, I mean, since July, uh, Texas State Police have, under Governor Abbott's orders, been arresting migrants. Um, you know, as a basically a criminal justice system for. Migrants that, that we're enforcing now in Texas because um, Abbott is upset, as you said, with the federal administration's uh, reaction to an, a, a very big increase in border crossings. And so since, you know, Texas can't, they have no jurisdiction over federal immigration law, so they can't arrest people for entering the country illegally. They can arrest people. So they're, they're now arresting people for most, almost always trespassing on private property after they're suspected of having entered the country illegally. Um, but you know, these are happening in small towns. Del Rio is the biggest one, but it's still a relatively small border town. Um, Kinney County next door to Valverde County, which has Del Rio, is very small with one judge and one prosecutor, um, and like one attorney at the prosecutor's office. And then they have had hundreds and hundreds of these arrests over less than two months. And what that has led to is, sure, DPS is arresting these people. They're being dropped off in two cleared-out Texas prisons um, that are holding migrants exclusively now, uh, as a as a you know state-run jail of sorts. Um, but the local judicial systems can't keep up, so it still you still have to follow state laws. Um, these are this is the state criminal justice system. You have to follow the state laws, and the state laws are saying you know if these are misdemeanor charges, within 30 days of an arrest of a misdemeanor, if you're in jail and you haven't been charged with that crime yet, you have to be released. Um, And so there were hundreds of people, it was about 250 that ended up being, who'd been held for longer than that. Um, In Valverde County, they did agree to do 15 days as opposed to 30, um, but most of these were Kinney County arrests. And so the the defense attorneys were basically, they just went to the state district judge to be like, hey, these people are being illegally detained. Um, And the judge is a Republican, but, you know, it's very clear in the law, uh, ordered the release of these of these men. Um, As of this morning, the Texas prison system tells me they have not yet been released. Uh, They're still waiting on the paperwork. You know, there's they have to file individual release forms for all of these men. Again, these are very small counties with small Staff uh, expected to be done by the day, but then it's really unclear what happens to them. I've been getting mixed info as to whether they're going to be picked up by ICE um, because ICE has so far not generally picked up the people whose charges are dismissed um, in this system because there have been about 1,000 men arrested so far. There's about 900 in prison right now. Um, If their cases have been dismissed and they're not facing any criminal charges at that point, usually ICE doesn't want them. Um, if they the people who have been able to go to court in Valverde County who have pleaded like they've pleaded out, which means like they've agreed to a plea settlement of 15 days, which they've obviously already been in prison for more than 15 days. So they're immediately released. Um, ICE has generally taken those into custody because they now have a criminal conviction on their record. Um, so it's kind of we're kind of in a waiting room to see where these you know, if these huge. If this hundreds of men are taken back to Del Rio, are they then processed by Border Patrol or are they going to be going into ICE custody? Um, It's really just I mean, it's again, it's one of these steps in this very new criminal justice system where um, it's kind of everyone's figuring out what to do as they go. And it's obviously led to violations of state law.
1: Yeah, it's it's interesting to see you know somewhat some of the parallels to the challenges that the Biden administration is having along the border. You know, we we had of course the um, the large group of uh, migrants. Um, being forced to camp under a bridge because uh, the the federal government did not have the resources to to process them at the at the rate that they were they were arriving at the border. Um, this is of course different because the, the state government is actively arresting them. But I mean, it's it's largely the same thing here, right? It's it's uh, under resourced in in this case, right? County officials who who basically just can't handle the sheer number of people who are being brought to them to to take them in. Um,
4: yeah, I mean, it's it's a problem. Like, I don't think anyone you talk to who lives in the border or who are works around the border would say there's not a crisis happening right now. There are there are no resources to handle the amount of people who are crossing into the country. Most of whom are crossing at places where they're trying to seek asylum. Um, but you know, the system can only handle so much at a time, right? Th- these are generally small towns, and they don't have the resources to do this. Um, which is what we saw with the Haitian migrants, right? Thousands of people came at once. There was obviously no way to process all those people as quickly as needed. Um, but, you know, the state law is a state law. If we're going to create a criminal justice system here, um, these are now, it's the state criminal justice. It has to follow state law. It has to follow constitutional law. Um, and these are things that are just, you know, as if you, are they're going full speed ahead and problems have surfaced kind of all over the place
1: right i think
4: think
3: we should point out (laughs) well i was just gonna say i think it's important to, to point out that sort of separate from kind of the political and or sort of policy reasons to step into the situation right by the state separate from that like we are talking of the, the dissonance between the people in charge, right? You've got governor Greg Abbott. He's a former Supreme court justice. He's a state attorney general. The people who are pushing this are very, you know, sort of law in order people, right. That otherwise sort of pursue uh, or emphasize kind of the, the need to follow the law and, and the importance of that. And at the same time, they have created a system in which they are routinely violating that state law, right? They are continuous, continuously violating the constitutional rights of people. And, like, it, it's it's a thing. like, on my be, I'm so used to seeing this play out in federal court on the civil side, right? But, like, at this point, we have a system, a criminal justice system the state has created sort of on this, like, quick ad hoc basis that is seemingly, you know, including people who are seeking asylum, which is a legal thing to do, who are being also caught up into the system, and at the same time, violating state law and constitutional rights while doing that. And I think that the dissonance between kind of the normal messaging and priorities here we hear from the people in charge and the way this is playing out, it's just so, I mean, it's just so remarkable. Well, it's been interesting, too, because the governor hasn't responded. Like, obviously, I reached out to the
4: governor's office on both of these stories since last week and this week, and they haven't responded to any of these questions about, you know, the law violations, the constitutional issues. But, you know, Governor Abbott is still very in support of this uh, initiative, right? He's continuously on Twitter almost every day uh, um, discussing how, you know, Department of Public Safety officers have arrested more people and are keeping the border secure. So it's just, um, and yeah, it, like politics aside, like this is a state system and there are laws that the state has created. The lawmakers have created, the judges are forced to uphold and this, this system that he's created is violating them.
2: Well, that's what I was going to say, Jolie. I don't, I don't think it is politics. aside. I think it's, it's all about politics, unfortunately, because I think like, to your point, there is I think everybody can admit that there is a crisis on the border. There's a lot of people coming here, and we don't know how to deal with it. I think the solution would be for local, state, and federal officials to get on the same page and figure out a way to um, to to remedy the situation, to alleviate it, to provide some type of relief. Instead, what we've got going on is the state and federal officials just really going at it, you know, and really just making politics out of it. I mean, Governor Abbott is not only on his Twitter, but He's on Fox News all the time talking about the border and you know what a what a bum job Biden has done down there. And his tweets, it's gotta be said, are always about how many apprehensions uh, Border Patrol or DPS has got. It's never about what we're talking about. It's never about, you know, the violations of people's rights under our criminal justice system that are like fundamental to how our system works, or about how he's funding the border wall, which we also have questions about. And I think that's the problem really, you know, it's really because all of this is under an emergency declaration. All of it is under like disaster rules. It's really governor Abbott who just gets to make all the rules and say, well, it's a disaster. So I can basically do whatever I want. And it's, uh, it really comes down to him. He made up this criminal justice system to, to deal with it. And, um, I mean, I think the real, really the the responsibility falls on him, and he's not answered any questions, which has been frustrating for us because you, Jolie, have been seeing the the real life impact of it, and for 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 myself because I've been trying to track the track the dollars on the border wall, uh, which there are rules for under <laughs> under state law, but because this is an emergency and a new thing we've made up out of nowhere, um, the rules don't seem to apply here.
1: Well, you know. I'm, I'm hesitant to, to, to put too much into a tweet, but I, I would also point out that Dave Carney, uh, Greg Abbott's kind of right-hand po- political man, shared promoted Jolie's story about migrants being arrested in the Texas border crackdown. Being in prison for weeks without legal help or former charges, you know, he shared that to the world, um, almost like it was a uh, a, a positive uh, thing, as opposed to you know something to be concerned about. So a violation
2: um, of our fundamental criminal justice system. Yeah,
1: yeah. So I, Yeah, because I mean, it's
2: not
4: just the uh, no charges, right? There were also dozens of people who haven't been appointed. They weren't appointed attorney. They were in prison. And again, this is not immigration court. This is the state criminal justice system. If you're arrested, you were supposed to be appointed an attorney within three days. Um, and they were in there for more than a month. They didn't even know like what was really happening to them. And they, they had no – you know, that most of these people, they don't speak English. And they're just – they're in a prison and um, trying to, they're not really able to talk to their families that much, and yet they, and they have no lawyer or advocate speaking for them who can even file these motions to say, hey, this person has been in prison for too long.
1: Well, uh, you know, Jolie and, and James, you all both have done, you know, very great reporting on this. So, so thank you. I think that wraps up our, uh, our time for this week. Um, thank you to Jolie, James, Alexa, Michael, Ray. Thank you to our sponsors, Philanthropy Advocates, the Texas Blockchain Summit, Independent Colleges and Universities of Texas, and the Beer Alliance of Texas. We'll talk to you all next week.